Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Now, Eric Arthur Blair's pen name, Orwell, has become an adjective describing the potential nature of our future. Dennis Glover's The Last Man in Europe looks at how Blair, or Orwell, came to write his seminal work, 1984. So, Dennis, welcome to 3CR. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Now, it would seem from this fictional retelling of Orwell's life that all his experiences were leading to the novel 1984. That's right. 1984 was the last book that George Orwell ever wrote, and in some ways, I think you can see from the experiences from when he was very young right to the end that here was a book that was inciting, that was bursting to get out. But all of his experiences, so for example, you've got Brendan Bracken, who yep. was the director of the BBC Eastern Service. He's was then called BB, which is where we get Big Brother in many ways. That's right, yes. So there's a lot of these uh, curios that come out all the way through the book that appear in 1984. That's right. People think that 1984 was a work of science fiction, that he was all well prophesizing this dystopian future, when in fact he was writing about his own time. So, for instance, Room 101, that's the meeting room in the BBC headquarters where he had his meeting, where he had um, committee meetings that he hated. So there's a satirical element there. Well, you mm. interestingly enough, you've raised that notion yeah. of the future and because you've got, in fact, a discussion that takes place between H. G. Wells and Orwell, and uh, it raises that whole notion. Or uh, Wells sort of was predictive of what was going to happen in the future. They've suggested that Orwell's nineteen eighty four, as you say, was uh, futuristic, but it is in fact the his present day, and in many ways our present day. Yeah, H. G. Wells thought the future would be a world of glittering glass and white snowy concrete, and um, the world would be a wonderful place. Whereas Orwell saw that. So the science that HG had championed, you know, the aeroplane, for instance, um, had led to destruction of the destruction of the Second World War. So science, he Orwell said that science was in the service of totalitarianism, not of humanity. And so that's one of the reasons why he wrote 1984, as a corrective to HG Wells. But again, we've still got this sort of uh, scientific thinking today. We're talking of yeah. going to Mars and such like. We can do it. We have the science. You know, we have yeah. the technology. Do we have... Or is it in our human nature to be able to survive such a thing, sort of thing, is the question. Well, Orwell, would, Orwell um, looked at how science was being abused. There's a, you know, an uplifting point to science, but also a danger. Um, the telescreen, for instance, just like our internet, is something that was creation of science, but in some ways has a very sinister connotation to it. Well, this is what we've got. I mean, 1984, the telescreen, television was basically coming into yep. being, so to speak. Yeah, Orwell saw the early televisions and, and saw its potential. And yet he reversed that where yeah. it was the, um, the, the party could view what the people were doing. Yeah. But now we've got the internet. Yeah. And if that hasn't come true, I don't know what has yeah. with the the capacity to be spied upon. Yeah, I think Orwell saw the dark potential of everything. So 
during the 1920s and 30s, he read a lot about what was happening in the Soviet Union. And so um, there were stories coming out of the Soviet Union about hidden microphones, about all sorts of surveillance, everyone being watched all the time. And so he just technologised it, if I can use that expression, to... Um, to show us how the world was uh, in danger of having our freedoms taken away from us by these technologies that we were creating. So, yeah. Right. Mm. So, um, yes, the the technological world. I mean, when you – there were some that argued that um, the 1984 was a book about uh, the dangers of communism in many yeah. ways, yeah. but it's not. Well, it's a book about the danger of totalitarianism more than communism. When Orwell was – after he'd finished writing the book and it had just been published, he was in hospital and dying. And one of the last public acts he ever did was he got his publisher, um, Frederick Warburg, to come in and – um, take dictation. Orwell by this time could hardly write, could hardly lift a pen, and he got and he and he got he got Warburg to put out a corrective to the misinterpretation of the book. Everyone thought it was an anti-communist novel, but in fact it was an anti-totalitarian novel. Um, and but but people were also saying it was an anti-socialist novel. And Orwell himself was a strong socialist to the end, and he said, "Look, this is not." an anti-socialist novel, it's an anti-totalitarian novel. But he also said that it's a warning to the future. Um, and that's what I think that's what his book was. He was writing about the politics of the 1930s and 40s and the destruction that followed. And so he was saying, don't let it happen again. Don't let it happen again in the future. But why does it still resonate today? Because I don't think it's necessarily about socialism or communism. It's about, can I put it this way, the darker side in each of us, in, in every individual? Because when you look at how totalitarianism can come to, into being, yeah. you simply have to go back when he was uh, writing The Road to Wigan Pier. He went down a coal mine and the miners weren't so much concerned about the working conditions, uh, it seems to be okay. They were more interested in the lottery, um, which is in many ways how we act today. Yeah, I think in that case, Orwell was pointing out that the workers were interested in material improvements to their life. They wanted um, better housing. They wanted higher wages. They wanted, a, you know, a bath and hot water in their, in their, you know, in, in their flats and so forth. They weren't so much interested in ideological politics. They weren't interested in so much in the brotherhood of man and, you know, the proletarian, you know, international dictatorship or whatever that the Communist Party and other people wanted, very practically minded people. Orwell got inside the, the mind of ordinary working class people and could see what sort of politics um, they wanted. Well, they, they, yeah. in many ways they were apolitical. They didn't really want politics or big well, I think they, I think they were political, but not in an ideological way, not, not in a way. I think what he was doing was criticising the intellectuals of his time who, who turned politics into an abstraction that ordinary people couldn't understand and weren't interested in. Which yeah. is what we've got Today, yeah, pretty much, ways. yeah, on the right and the left to some extent, and uh, the, the the you know the goal is to connect you know idealism, whether it's left or right, with um with how the with people's with people's lives. Is that hmm. possible to? I mean, because we simply hand over our ideology. I mean, at the individual. When you look at this concept, for example, of Big Brother that Orwell invented and the danger of totalitarianism, well, we've turned it into a reality television show and, and diminished yeah. the significance of the statement. 
But I think we're seeing it again in the real world. You know, Orwell's warning not to repeat the politics of the 1930s. Perhaps that's the th- that's the reason why the book um, has gone, you know, back to number one on Amazon now, which is because people can see it repeating, you know, the... The idea of uh, you know democracy surrendering itself to populists, of ongoing wars, of governments surveilling us, um, the politics of the 1930s in some ways, the populism, the the rawness, the the collapse of the centre, it's all happening again. And I think all if Orwell was around today, he'd say, "Look, I sent you a warning. Don't let it happen. It's happening." Orwell coming back mm. from the grave. But things like um, the uh, Use of language. Yeah. I mean, there was that essay, of course, that uh, Orwell wrote Politics about. Politics and the English language, his famous essay, yes. 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 And then that appears in 1984 as Newspeak. But basically, yeah. it um, was part and part of the discourse in the BBC about basic English. Yeah. Well, in the 1930s and 40s, a bunch of intellectuals tried to put together a new synthetic language called basic English. It had um, a thousand words only and very few um, verbal constructions. And uh, Orwell was parodying this as Newspeak. People don't realise this, but he was actually sending up something that was going on around him. And in fact, one of the characters in 1984 um, talks about translating um, the English poets into Newspeak. And in fact, that's what one of Orwell's friends, um, William Empson, was doing. He was trying to translate Wordsworth into into basic English in the 1930s and 40s. And people have set themselves the <laughs> yeah. task of putting the great works of literature into a tweet. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's still happening. Yeah, yeah. Double yeah. plus good, if you ask Double me. Double plus good, if, yep. uh, Yeah. The, the notion and the political philosophies, or, or there was doublethink, yeah. and you've got James Burnham's belief that the world would be dominated by uh, three different power blocks yeah. led by the Soviet Union, Japan and the United States. But this was after he'd then previously predicted the Nazis would have a victory and then the Soviet Union mm. would be victorious. And so this ability to simply slide between positions yeah. um, and then, of course, the three world powers, which is 1984. Yeah, James Burnham was um, a thinker who started off on sort of a Trotskyist left in the 1930s and then moved across to the right. He'd be a neoconservative in today's terms. In fact, he's one of the founders of the neoconservative movement, and he wrote in the nineteen he wrote in the early nineteen forties that the world would be divided into three superstates, and Orwell was directly um, attacking this idea in nineteen eighty four. And you can see in his diaries and his other writings where he reads Burnham, and all of a sudden this light goes on in his head, and it becomes part of his masterpiece, nineteen eighty four. But. It's still mm. happening today because, yeah. I mean... Um, you well, look- today it's China, isn't it? We've got America declining, we've got China and we've got Europe. And so he would say we've got three competing power blocks um, and they're engaged in low-level war. Today it's waged online, perhaps, um, and, uh, and you know, in various terrorist... August, shady terrorist organisations, and it's, so you know what's changed. But also the double think. For example, yeah. we've got we've had Gonski one and Gonski two, mm. but Gonski one was Labor Party, Gonski two was Liberals. They've, they're co-opting each other. There doesn't seem to be an ideological stance. It's let's grab. Same happened with the GST. Let's grab that policy. We'll object to it, mm. and then we'll introduce it. Sort of thing. Well, one of the elements of double think is this idea of um, of wiping out you know, your past pronouncements. So the Liberals were against Gonski. Now it seems they own it 
and we're supposed to forget this overnight. And that's what Orwell was sending up. You know, this world that he created wasn't some fantastical science fiction world. He was parodying things that are going on going on in his own time that are still going on today, and that's the power of his novel. But in many ways, mm. it's even more insidious today because yeah. uh, information is in grabs, yeah. which then diminish with a flick across your iPhone or whatever. So people do not necessarily... Mm look back. I mean, in 1984, yeah. of course, you couldn't Orwell... Or well, in 1984, I, they physically destroy the equivalent of a tweet. So, you know, the newspapers come out, they, they rip it up and put it down the memory hole. Yes. And it disappears. And so it never existed. And, Whereas we're and, trying to do that today. People uh, wiping yeah. out what they've said on, online. Yeah. Well, that's going to be increasingly mm. more difficult for people to do. But individuals are simply allowing it to happen themselves, regardless that there's this backlog of information digitally stored yeah, about yeah. the truth. Yeah. They simply ignore it and think, oh, well, that must be because that's the next thing I've read. Yeah. You've seen it in the um, politics in America where Trump's fake news is in fact a reality, yeah. where news is being created and the algorithms in the digital world keep feeding people uh, the same yeah. sorts of stories based on what they've been searching for. So it reaffirms their own truth, which yeah, is in yeah. fact false. Yeah, all we're saying that the, the lie becomes the truth, which then becomes recorded and becomes historical fact. And that's in, in some ways what's happening. You know, uh, Trump goes out and says, the, at my inauguration, we have the greatest crowd ever. And um, it's, it's patently untrue, but it goes on the record. And now it'll be in future years some historian will take it as as read and say Trump got massive turnouts when he was um, when he was inaugurated but so. that capacity to allow ourselves to do that is within each and every individual to believe yeah. that and not therefore pursue the truth which yeah. is what well that's what Orwell did you see that's that the great thing about Orwell was that he was the great believer in the truth and he devoted his whole life to debunking these sorts of ways that the truth was being undermined and so his journalism was always powerful and gutsy and he was never afraid to take it up to people and tell them what he really thought of them, even at his own great personal cost. So, yeah. Now, another interesting thing about this book, as I was reading it, I'm tagging it all the way through yeah. thinking 1984, 1984. Yeah. I've read 1984. Well, I've had to teach. Yeah. I actually taught 1984 in 1984, uh. which was, you know, a Well, you know, I read it at school like everyone else. That's how I came to love the novel. I had to read it, I think, four times. I changed schools once, so I had to actually study it four times at high school. So I've, I've internalised it over the years. And, but yeah. how would a, a modern-day reader, a younger yeah. reader yeah. perhaps, um, approach your novel without that experience? What would, I'm just wondering what the experience would be like. Well, I think we start off in a culture that's so saturated with George Orwell that e even people who are hardly even know uh, Orwell's that Orwell existed uh, understand some of the concepts behind it. Big Brother, Room 101, all of these things, uh, Double Think, Thought Crime, all of these things are out there in the ether. And But, but I think that you could read my novel as a story mm. about one man's great struggle against... Um, uh, against um, overwhelming odds and against his own illness to create a, a book that sends a warning to the future. So, so I've written it in a way that 
the people like you who know and love 1984 will automatically um, see little triggers in there to say, ah, that's where he got that idea, that's where he got that idea, that's where he got that idea. But to someone else reading it, I think, uh, and I hope, it's a great tale um, that involves um, meeting the working class, going to the Spanish Civil War, being hunted down by communists, then um, becoming a propagandist, and uh, and then and then in great in circumstances of great tragedy with the death of his wife, setting himself this task of writing 1984 as he dies. So it, it would mm. become a, a precursor to them reading 1984. Yeah, well, and, I hope it sends people back to read 1984. It's such a, an important novel, but also his other novels because within it I've, um, I've, I've recreated scenes from, from his earlier... Animal Farm... Uh, Coming up for homage, air, keep yeah. the Asper Distra flying, yeah. homage to Catalonia, the road to Wigan Pier, yeah. all of his other fantastic – I just love those books. All of his other great books um, are all there. So I'm hoping that it sends people back to the source to read them for themselves. Now, there's a human element to yeah. all of this as well. That's right. And I think it's sort of um, done in two ways. You've got that argument about two and two equals and yeah. – um, when Winston was tortured, uh, the party wanted him to admit it was five because that's what the party said. Oh. And so other publications did it, was it blank, two and two equals blank, in which case there would be a, a modicum yeah. of hope that's still right. existing, the last vestige. That's right, yeah. Uh, or was it two and two equals five and, and yeah. what was intended? But there's another moment also yeah. of hope. And speaking off air, you were saying this is – one of the only fictional moments. Oh, he oh. married, uh, truly fictional, um, he married uh, Sonia Brownell, Brownell yep. three months before he died. That's right. And you have a scene where he's fondling uh, Sonia's breasts while yeah. he's lying in hospital on yeah. his bed, dying. He's going to die in three months' yeah. time. Mm. And it's almost, um, is, is pathetic the right word, this last hope? Yeah. Of a, of a well, man. The, well, the fondling of the breasts is, I've made up. Mm. <laughs> but it, I can't get that close to Orwell. But, but the actual meeting between them, they actually met before he died. And one of the last things he ever said to her was, um, I think because of my illness, he was dying of tuberculosis in terrible circumstances. Because of my illness, I think I may have mucked up the ending of the book and, and taken too much hope from it, made it too bleak. So if I had the chance to write it again... I would make it more uplifting. I would give an element of hope. And the element of hope that I've injected comes from a mystery, which is that after the first edition of 1984, the five drops out of two plus two equals five. So if Winston writes two plus two equals, which came in the second impression, it means that he's evaded the thought police and died with thought crime on his mind, which gives us hope that man can triumph. Over, yeah, yep. totalitarianism. Exactly. Yes. But in many ways, um, from a, a, a literary mm. point of view, th- you know, a dying man fondling breasts, you know, yeah. life still continues. Yeah. Is there a parallel there in what you were doing? <laughs> well, no, I think it was more that um, he just married this woman, but he was the idea of sex between them was out of the question, question. because he, was, he had tuberculosis and he was, you know, she, would, she may have caught it off him. Even kissing him could would have been have, fatal. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, but also then, um, I mean, his whole uh, notion towards relationships, yeah. ha- uh, open marriages and such yeah. like. He was a radical. He was, you know, the literary intelligentsia at this time were, were you know, we think every generation thinks it's the only radical generation. Everyone else is conservative. But for his time, he and his wife were, were 
were radical. They were, that, you know, they they had a, a relatively open marriage. It didn't make for happiness, but they did it, and they went off to fight in the Spanish Civil War, War together. I mean, sacrificed their lives for their beliefs. It's, yes, yeah. um, but in many ways. Uh, Orwell had an understanding, or Eric Arthur Blair, yeah. had an understanding of the political and, and the social. Yeah. But was he, uh, therefore, as acquainted with the personal then, that uh, these sorts of things might lead to unhappiness, the open uh, marriage and infidelity and such? Well, like. he was always um, cons- he's always interested in this um, disjuncture between um, personal freedom and and our relations uh, with others. So, for instance, the Spanish Civil War. He goes to Spain. He's in Barcelona, and the which is which is um, controlled by the anarchists. Mm. And the anarchists um, give up the idea of marriage. They're into free love, and and he loves this idea. But he can see immediately that um, perhaps human. It's the sort of thing that human nature would rebel against. So there's this sort of dichotomy between man's desire to be free but also the realities of his human nature which make it impossible. The idea of absolute loyalty to another person, not sexually but emotionally, rather than to the state or a party or an ideology, is the foundation of freedom, in my view. Mm. If the state can't tell you whom to love, its power isn't absolute, is it? The first thing an, an omnipotent dictator would do is ban the orgasm, followed by marriage and parenthood, perhaps even stop people living together, I expect that under torture, the first thing they'd do is get you to denounce your wife. 1984. Yeah. But that understand, or he's applying a, a, a political ideology to yeah. a very human... That's right. But he was also, this was also based on reality because uh, reports were coming out of the Soviet Union during the 1930s that during the great show trials, they would get wives and children to denounce their parents as traitors and tell them what they'd been saying behind closed doors. So Orwell was saying that if they can turn your children against you and your wife, then the state has complete and total absolute power over the human being. Mm. Only only humanity, only the very human elements of us can save us from from absolute power from the state. Now, we've got uh, Ewan and his guest outside, but I don't think uh, he can see us, um, which was where I was going to. But you're going to be talking um, at the Melbourne Writers' Festival that's coming right. up. yes. And the yes. theme, of course, is revolutions. Yeah. Um, so that should be um, an interesting... Yeah, revolutions that go wrong. That's yeah. what Orwell was writing about. Yeah. And um, you're also speaking at the Savage Club. Yep. Now, we have Ewan's guest and we have Cassie here as well. So we've got a little time left. Um, so welcome, Ewan. Welcome, Cassie. And uh, what um, what have you got to tell us? Yep, uh, Ewan? Well, Cassie Lane's book is How to Dress a Dummy, and the subtitle is From International Model to Worst Dressed at the Brownlow, How I Learned to Love Imperfection. Now, before the show and um, uh, before Dennis arrived, David and I were talking about a theme that is possibly common to both. And so I'm just, we haven't got much time, so I'm just going to throw it in there. People are being destroyed from inside and we are allowing it to happen. So if I could throw to you first, Cassie, could you see how this would be applied to uh, someone in the modelling industry, given the nature of your book? Oh, well, you've certainly put me on the spot with <laughs> this have. question. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um I would say that we live in, 
I, I think I've got a f- quite a few issues with capitalism. Yep. And I guess uh, I talk about in my book, I lived a very hedonistic lifestyle. I lived in LA. I was sal- surrounded by celebrity and and fame and uh, beauty and wealth and, and all of the things that we are taught to aspire to. Um, and I could see that everybody was miserable and yep. I think it's a big fat lie mm-hmm. and it's a myth that and even more so today with um, social media and all of these um, the mass media kind of propagates this message to young kids that internalize this idea that if I am just X then I will be happy beautiful wealthy uh, whatever it might be and um, I think that we're all miserable because of it and I think that that is definitely related to the rise of depression and and suicide and addiction and and um, I I feel like I saw it firsthand uh, in my experience being in 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 industries and um, communities where it was um, rife. I don't know if that if well, that's the right is. connection. And Sorry, for anyone, I just... for anyone listening who doubts that an international model can be articulate, well, you've just been put in your place. <laughs> so to give what you've done though in your book though is you've given flesh to some of the notions of Hollywood being superficial. Uh, people being exploited ruthlessly, and you've done it from the inside out. I would actually like to jump to the your friend at the end, who was a shadow of herself, smoking that pipe. Oh yeah. Would you like to share with the listeners a little bit about her? Uh, she was one of my best friends living in LA. She was a very successful model, um, and she ended up becoming a, an, a quite a successful actress as well. She played a main villain in a in a big blockbuster. Um, she was uh, she sort of uh, you would say she had it all. Um, and, uh, uh, and she sort of became quite distant. She actually became good friends with Courtney Love, Kurt Cobain's, uh, wife, ex-wife. Um, and, uh, and then we sort of caught up with her because she'd sort of become quite distant. And then we realized that she had become, uh, uh, highly addicted to crack and, um, she was a shell of herself and she was in a really, really bad place, um, and so I had to spend time with her. I talk about it in the book, this one scene where I had to spend time with her until we could get her into a rehab centre. And she had to keep, they told her to keep smoking because you can, it's really dangerous to um, just, you know. Im, Im, to stop it. Yeah, to stop it immediately. Cold and yeah. So I had to sit sit there and be with this friend of mine who's very intelligent um, and uh, very self-aware. you've been self-aware. with her for a, a number of years while you're in LA. She yeah. was one of your best friends. Yeah. And she was on top. Yeah. And you just sh- saw what a shell she was by yeah. the end. And that's really brought home in your novel these scenarios. Uh, in Milan as well, I've, I've got to say I laughed when you screwed up the Wonderbra contract <laughs> and you seem to have a, a little bit of self-sabotage going. Is that yeah. a fair comment? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, also, I, I guess that I felt like I was never really good enough and so I think I had to prove it to everybody Um so that I could, rather than failing, I could be like, well, I chose to fail. I don't want to be famous anyway. Who wants to make hundreds of thousands of dollars for you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and look, it, it, throughout the book I was laughing. I was really confronted by some of the scenes when, I don't want to give you. too much away, but when you're on the freeway in LA and you decide to swap lanes, my heart was in my mouth. Oh, wow. And um, it, it, was, uh, it was really well put. But what I really liked were the punches you landed really solid points and you're probably not going to like me asking this but would you regard those points that you landed explaining to women what you went through and how it might uh, help them would you regard some of those points as feminist 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that this is very much a feminist book. I'm very proudly yeah. feminist. Good. Um, yes, absolutely. Because Clem Ford has given you a great line at the start, and those who know the book Fight Like a Girl will know, I believe in gender equality, I just don't believe in feminism, and she just <laughs> destroys that. So I'm really pl- uh, proud and pleased to hear you put yourself on the record as, as saying that. Um, and, 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 you know, I don't know why feminism is, or I, I sort of do have some clue as to why it's uh, misinterpreted and often um, contentious, but I'm really pleased you said that. Um, while we really probably have run out of time to bounce off um, uh, with, with Dennis in 80, 1984, or do we have a just a quick question one? if you've got one? Into yeah, go for it. Well, I, I just want to uh, Dennis from uh, I know we're looking at Orwellian language and uh, the politics of the English language. The use of language in Cassie's book actually shows how from the inside-out models are exploited, and I'm trying to think of a better word now than collateral damage. <laughs> but is language one of the enemies too in the way we regard women in society? Yeah, I think so. We, you know, Orwell's, Orwell thought that one of the big you know, evils, of society, uh, evils of society at the moment was the destruction of meaning in language. So the idea that um, you, know, you could justify murder yeah. Um, uh, yeah. If you put it in, in, you know, in a different way, and I, I guess with Cathy's book, you know, you could justify, um, you know, destroying people's lives by calling it beauty. Yeah, the diminishment of, of people's lives. And we'll we'll have to wind it up there. But for those who would like to read How to Dress a Dummy, look for the amazing story about how to get a Christmas tree at Christmas. Yeah. It is hilarious. And I interviewed uh, Dennis Glover about the Last Man in Europe, and it's from Black Ink Books. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.